0: You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. Joshua Rasmussen, good to see you. Good to see you. Thank you. Welcome to everyone in the Sophia audience, MeaningofLife.tv, BloggingHeads.tv. This is the Sophia program. It's available on streaming uh, video and audio podcast uh, I am Daniel Kaufman, your host. I'm a professor of philosophy at Missouri State University. I also edit and publish the Electric Agora, an online magazine devoted to philosophy and its intersection with politics, popular culture, and all sorts of other good things. I'm very pleased to be here with Josh Rasmussen, and I'm going to allow Dr. Rasmussen to introduce himself. Uh, Josh, tell everybody uh, who you are and what you do.
1: Thank you. Yeah, so uh, I'm Josh Rasmussen. I teach philosophy at Azusa Pacific University. And I would say that my area of focus would gravitate towards sort of foundational things like foundation of existence, foundation of minds. Those are two topics that I keep sort of coming back to. And um, yeah, what else? I'm I'm married to a beautiful wife, Rachel, and I've got four kids with a fifth on the way.
0: Well... <laughs> Now you are obviously much younger than I am, um, and um, I I'm also married. I have a I have one daughter, mm-hmm. and we found that one daughter was about as much as we could manage. So I have to say I'm already quite impressed that y- you don't look like a broken man. Well, I shouldn't say this on the air,
1: but I, I was like done at three, <laughs> and but my wife is like, no, let's have another one. So each one, each additional one, is like. Just about the point where I'm not like 100% resisting. She's like, I'm <laughs> pregnant. It's like, okay, all right. I think I can, I can handle this. So, God, but it's, it's a lot of work. I have to tell you, actually, a discovery I made: having four is easier than having two. Is it because the they entertain had, each other? Is it because they entertain? Yeah. Yes, they're a system, and uh, and they get a little older, and so it makes it easier. Yeah. But I, I will tell you, when we had two, um, my favorite day of the week was Monday morning. Uh, Monday was like my favorite day because. I had time to do philosophy work, a little bit of freedom from the home, and now having more kids actually feels like it's easier. Sure. Now, where is Azusa Pacific? Where Northern is it? Southern California. It's uh, outside LA. It's
0: Azusa. And, and just the 30-second version, do you know what you guys are doing this fall? Uh, I know Cal State is completely online. What are the yeah. private schools doing?
1: Yeah, so we um, – I think it might be split, but the latest I heard was that we're going to open up and we're going to allow some amount of um, in-classroom facilitation. So we'll see. see how what about goes. all your
0: kids' schools?
1: Yeah, so right now they're all homeschooled. Oh, so, All right, not
0: because of corona. Not because of it. So in that sense, our routine won't change with respect to that. If that stays all locked up, you're already doing that, so that's not well, going to be an added – gotcha. Yeah gotcha well i brought i can't i asked josh to be on because um he, uh, is interested in some of the stuff that I've done in these prolegomena that I've been talking with Crispin Sartwell about. And, um, I actually got Joshua's, Joshua was recommended to me by Robert Gressis, who I've also had on the show several times and who's just hosted a show of his own on my, on my channel. Um, and so that's why I brought Joshua on was to talk about the prolegomena. And I'm going to allow him to sort of lead the discussion so that he can raise the points that he's interested in raising. Um, and Joshua, from what I can tell from reading his the materials of his that I've had the chance to read, probably disagrees with me about just about everything. <laughs> and so um, I think this will be particularly fruitful to to have him do a little interrogation of me on these various topics. So Joshua, why don't you go ahead and, uh, and start yeah. off? So I don't know Dan I mean I think there are some very important points of disagreement
1: that I'd like to explore but when you sent me your links I found myself quickly in resonance with your common sense approach and I find myself just agreeing with a lot of things so I was taking some notes and I sort of thought of some questions to maybe help draw out your view and to sort of clarify kind of what really is at stake and the topic that I proposed for you was we could sort of organize the conversation around the question How can there be persons? Because it sort of occurred to me that as you're building out your worldview, you're thinking about our talk about persons and sort of in similar to our talk about like mathematical um, objects. We talk about like numbers and you have sort of maybe some similar things that you say where you want to really account for common sense, talk about persons. You don't want to shave persons off of existence. Um, But then at the same time, it seems like you're kind of reacting against certain metaphysical accounts of how persons could be sort of built into the material world, either by reducing persons to the material world or through other, some other means. And I wonder if maybe just to sort of start it off, like, so how can there be persons? If you could give kind of a summary of of how you are thinking of what persons are or what person talk is, how you think about that. And then I can maybe ask some clarification questions as we go from there.
0: Yeah. So, um, I don't know how familiar familiar you are or how, uh, what you think of Wilfred Seller's distinction between the scientific and the manifest image, um, but I think the question, how could there be persons, is a kind of microcosm of the question, how could there be a manifest image, right? Um, yeah. And um, I guess, you know, if I'm going to talk sort of genealogically, the rough sketch of what I would say is um, – once nature evolved to the point to which there were creatures that could, um, uh, that, that, that were capable of, uh, of intentionality of representation, um, and of, uh, of, uh, of teleological, uh, ways of thinking, um, that it created a space in sense a space in w- that that in a sense has its own ontology, right? So that that's mm-hmm. that that space is is, is uh, the things in that space are neither reducible to nor identical with mm-hmm. nor eliminate eliminable in favor of emergent upon, would you say? I'm sorry
1: would you say emergent upon?
0: Yeah, I I do reject. So in the most recent uh, edition of the prologan, I did reject sort of supervenience accounts. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. Um, um, Because it's still, first of all, I I do question whether supervenience actually really tells us anything. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, I tend to think it doesn't. Uh, Mm -hmm. And, um, but even beyond that, um, Supervenience is still going to, you know, to say that some, let's say, you know, a thought supervenes on a set of electrochemical reactions in the brain um, still runs into the problems that arise from what's commonly referred to as content externalism, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah. if part of the, if thoughts are partly individuated by content that is only comprehensible. Um, in relation to objects, as well as that's the Put- that's the Putnam sort of line, yeah. As well as in relation to social conventions, that's the Wittgenstein line, right? Then, even if you had an atom for atom replica of, of an individual, yeah, right, sure, they could be in different psychological states because those states are individuated in part by their mm-hmm. contents, which are uh mm-hmm. determined externally right and so i, I do want to say that um um the space that's created by, that that the space that comprises the manifest image and the and things within it of which persons are 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 primary um arises out of nature right but in a sense once that space is created it has a distinct ontology mm-hmm. and a distinct logic that is not what we find in the scientific image and is not reducible to it or eliminable in favor of it. Um, and so that's the sort of the very big picture way I think about this. Now we can get into the details about persons and about, um, but m- my view on this is essentially mm-hmm. um with a lot of sort of Wittgenstein and other later Wittgenstein and other stuff that I bring to, that I bring to bear that reflects my own personal intellectual background. You know, part of, yeah. part of what I want to say about this is that I, I do think that much more than people acknowledge philosophies are as much expressions of the temperaments of the people advancing them as they are mm-hmm. pictures of something that exists independently of mm-hmm. us. I think philosophy is even more so than scientific theories subject to that. And I've written about that also on other occasions. Yeah, I actually really love that way of putting it. I was thinking about that just
1: recently, that your philosophy is kind of like an unpacking of a perspective. And that perspective can be fully sort of rational, given all your background considerations, like you're trying to understand the world. But I think sometimes what will happen is people will kind of objectify their perspective as the reasonable perspective. And then it sort of knocks people off, right? Like either this perspective is Reasonable, um, and then yours isn't. But I think it's um, what you're saying is not that there isn't an actual objective truth or some reality out there. At least I don't, I'm not hearing you say that reality is relative. Just that people can develop a worldview based on kind of your unique set of circumstances.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah I, you know, I I do. I have to say, I do flirt a lot with metaphysical anti-realism. Uh-huh um and wh- you know whether or not how 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 much i would want to sort of plant my flag on it i don't know um I should also say, just in reaction to your first question, just because it may affect a lot of what we say here, I do think that most substantial philosophical positions suffer from indeterminacy. Uh-huh. Yeah, And so I actually don't think that there's a fact of the matter as to whether anti-realists or realists are correct. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's true of, of most of the really important things. And so I don't really care that much to fight any of these things sort of to the death um, because I really don't think that that's the kind of activity philosophy is. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. um, I think it's more about, we try to develop views that are, that have a certain intelligibility and a certain aptness. Right. Mm -hmm. And um, that that's about the best we can do. um, And that more than that mistakes philosophy for other kinds of inquiry. I think, especially in the analytic tradition, a lot of people mistakenly think philosophy is a lot like science, and I think it's very, very much unlike it mm. in this regard. So. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, so I want to sort of think with you more about the manifest image. Sure. So kind of the way that I'm thinking about it is sort of like there's a phenomenology of like what it's like to be you kind of looking out in the world. So you have this sort of perspective, a set of feelings, maybe a set of thoughts. It's maybe you could say pers- first person-ish or kind of perspectival. And then the kind of I sort of think the way I think of it is it's kind of like this third person kind of person independent description or perspective independent description of reality. And then I hear you saying that um, both are both exist in some sense, like there really is a manifest image, a perspectival uh, experience. And then there really is a kind of third person reality. And then there's this question of like how they're related. Um, how they connect, or how you can sort of get one from the other. And let, let's say we maybe divide two kind of global theories of the world. Into, um one view would be that the third person comes and that in the order of ex, uh, metaphysical explanation, and then the first person reality sort of comes later in the development of the unfolding of the universe. Okay. And then the other way would just flip it. So you have the um, the, the opposite. So, you know, e- either mind comes first or non mind comes first. And I kind of am very curious, like, so I was writing down some notes of some questions. I want to get clear how the first person and sort of third person or the scientific image and manifest image, like fit together in your ontology. So you mentioned that you don't think supervenience um, is going to tell the story. And I'm with you on that. Um, I wonder, like, would you go in for a kind of global supervenience where if you, like, duplicate all the third-person facts, then the first-person facts come for free? Or would you be sort of unhappy even with that language? Because as I was reading your um, your articles, it seemed like there's something even about the language that you would say, like, the sort of experiential thoughts aren't things you said, right? Like, they're not things. They're not... Um, the first person self is not like a substance or a thing. And so I'm just, I'm curious to hear more like what you mean by thing, how you see these things coming together. And my prediction is that as you unpack that a little bit more, we're going to find some interesting points where, uh, you know, I guess where we can seek further wisdom together.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So on the first point, I think there's one world. Yeah. Um. um and, I think it's a world that has people in it. So what, the way I see the scientific and the manifest image is there are two pictures of that world, right? The scientific is, image is a picture of that world that attempts to adopt as perspectiveless a perspective as possible, right? Mm-hmm. Of course, it's not entirely possible um, because science is a human activity, right? It's an activity engaged in by people. Um, but it at least endeavors, um, to provide. So, so, so the scientific image is an image of the world without, uh, uh, people's representations of it and, and, representations and valuations of it, right? The manifest image is the, is a picture of the world with all that stuff in it, um, and, I take there to be one can acquire a complete picture of the world by entertaining both images as Sellers calls it stereoscopically, meaning, you know, how does a stereoscope work? Right, you, you look through, you know, you you have you're looking through two eye holes, each one produces an image. Neither image is a complete, gives you a complete picture, but looking at them together does create a complete picture.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But notice that one I one picture is not reducible to the other or or eliminable in favor of it. You need through both. Another metaphor I've given is sort of an a single image that's created by looking through two transparencies, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the way I sort of see it. Now in terms of the ontology, and this is sort of important, it's a methodological point, um, I am happy f- with there to be both metaphysical and explanatory disunity or heterogeneity. In other words, Uh I see no independent reason for thinking that there needs to be one account just because there's one world. I don't think it follows from the fact that there's one world, that there should be just one account of it. And I don't see any reason why the accounts have to be anything more than mutually consistent. That is, I don't see any reason why they would have to cohere. Right. And so I'm perfectly happy for the sort of the final state of things to be that we have multiple pictures. We need all of them to get a p- complete picture of the world, but they're not going to be assimilable. Um, and we're not going to be able to say much more about the relations between them than that we need them both to create a complete picture. That is, I don't see any, any chance of a reconciliation I, because I don't see any any con- inherent conflict. Now, let me just say one last thing about what you asked me regarding – um Uh, persons and things. One of the things I tried to do very early on in the prolegomena, because I saw it as something that would just keep coming up again and again, is to make very clear that I do not see any reason to take ontological commitment as being hypostatic. That is um, the fact that I say there is something is not to say that there is a discrete object in space or substrate, right? it's simply to say that there is something. And so, you know, you know, there clearly are parking regulations, right? Yeah. Uh, Because I know that because I just had to pay $50 for violating one. Um, But it's neither a discrete object nor a substrate. Right. Um, And so I think, I think a lot of the problems we get into, the problems in metaphysics that we get into is that people unconsciously think of ontological commitment hypostatically. So if something then isn't a material object, they think it's got to be some sort of weird substance,
1: Okay, and yeah.
0: then you get problems of interaction, you get epistemological problems. I mean this is how you get the berasseef uh problem in, in 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 mathematical truth um and I just think it's based on a mistaken understanding of what ontological commitment consists of, and I think that we make that mistake because we do tend to um presuppose that that things are always thingy, right? I call it thinginess, um, because our paradigm for existence is stuff like this. Right. Um, but I think if we think about it, we realize an awful lot of the things that we deal with in life are nothing like this. Mm -hmm. Um, a lot of the most significant things we deal with in life are nothing like that. And I think sort of once we break the spell of that conception of what it is to say that there is something, a lot of the, um, sort of really perplexing problems just sort of um, they dissolve. That's
1: what I'm wondering about. So I'm wondering if it helps to make these distinctions, but if, although it helps, it doesn't really fully take care of all the problems. So um, one thing I I like about what you're saying here is that you're distinguishing between like existence as like a thing or a substance versus in my terms, I would say like existence, simpliciter. Um, so for example, if I talk about numbers existing, I'm not thinking of numbers as like discrete entities in space and time. Right. Um, but I'm inclined to think that there are prime numbers. So therefore there are numbers, right? Right. Um, I don't mean anything meaty about that. Or, you know, sometimes people say, are you, do you mean something that's ontologically committing? And I wonder, well, what do you mean by ontologically? I just mean what you mean in ordinary English. Right. There are
0: numbers, you know.
1: Right. So I think we might be in resonance on this point that there are
0: things. Right. So if you um, ask well, okay, me what you is. You wouldn't call them things, though. If you ask me what is, what is seven. Yeah. I can tell you all sorts of things. I can say it's less than eight. It's more than right. six. Yes. If you double it, you get 14. In other words, I can tell you all kinds of things. But if what you, and you say, no, 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 what is it? And then the answer is supposed to be it's a platonic form. Uh-huh. that's the error. That's the hypostatic error. Well, that's
1: right? going further. Yeah, no. And so I'm, I'm with I'm, you in that. Yeah, there's a that, kind that's of minimal claim. Yeah. But it's interesting because even there you use the term things. So like you could say all sorts of things. But I, my understanding is, strictly speaking, you don't even think that what you're saying about the numbers are things. Right? I just want to make sure I'm – I don't
0: – because of the limits of ordinary language – we can't avoid using the word things. Right. That's why I invented the word thingy. Thingy. There are things that don't <laughs> wow. have thinginess. Um, 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 so there's like a thick thing and thin thing. Maybe. maybe we could use that. I mean, I, you know, all these things have have, have limitations. Yes. But um, you know, wh- with when when Crispin sort of interrogated me on this on with respect to persons, he noticed that one of the things I did was when when I rhetorically asked myself the question, "Well, what are persons?" My answer was, well, persons are brothers and, and husbands. Persons are um, litigants and defendants. Persons are hero, heroes and villains. President. In other words, I enumerated a whole bunch, right? Yeah. But what I didn't do was give you some answer. Oh, they're bags of bones, and uh, or they're you know collections of neurological. Because that's not the kind of things persons are. And so those sorts of answers are inapt, right? Those those sorts of uh, answers presuppose what I would claim is a hypostatic conception of ontological commitment that, again, I don't think follows just from the existential quantifier.
1: Yeah, so there's this question about, like, what is it to even say what something is? And so one way that metaphysicians, you know, this is kind of for the audience, but, like, yeah. as you would know, like one way that we would analyze what something is is by uh, expressing its maybe essential properties, but like another way that we might say what something is is by expressing maybe its essential parts, right? Um, you know, another way of saying what something is is just to say a bunch of true things about it, right? And I think sometimes maybe philosophers get across to
0: enumerate a bunch of yeah. a number of instances of it, a number of very right. clear instances to give examples, of it, right? yeah. yeah, yeah,
1: right, yeah. So um, I'm actually happy to sort of leave open like whether a persons almost like what more we might say about persons. So I'm sort of happy to say like with you that there are persons and I'm not so sure I have a clear grasp on like what it is to say that a person is a thingy thing. So you're not a
0: Cartesian.
1: Well, so this is all going to require translation, right? So, I mean, I don't do think, think that
0: you don't think that that minds are sort of non-physical substrates. Well, what does physical
1: mean? What is a substrate? Right. So there are different theories of these things. So, okay, well, let me just tell you my views. So, <laughs> what is that? I mean, are you holding up a manifest image or are you
0: holding No, no, you no, no I'm just saying, you're ex- saying, well, what's a material object? Well, okay, here's you're, one. You're giving me uh, the example. You're cup, pointing to it. A cup. Yes. Right. So I'm assuming minds are not like cups in the sense that they don't take up space. They don't have mass volume.
1: Well, th- th- okay, so this is good. This is one of the questions I had is if you think there are any thingy things... And then if so, maybe say a little bit more. And sure, I'm not saying I, mean, I, I think, disagree you know, with know, I them, mean,
0: like, you know, I just whacked my head on the ceiling um, standing up this morning. Um, and um, so, you know, I had a very intimate engagement with something that uh, has mass and volume um, yes. and is subject to various uh, mechanical laws, right? Now, I mean, you can get into all sorts of difficulties if you start – Um, messing around with, well, but isn't this just a bunch of, um, atoms and aren't those just a bunch of waves and et cetera, et cetera. Um, but, you know, if you want to talk about within the scientific image, I think that, I think that metaphysical pluralism and explanatory disunity operate over there as well. I mean, um, in the sense that, um, I'm convinced by Fodor's anti-reductionist arguments and special sciences, I don't think you can reduce the laws of one science to another. Um, and so I, I just think it's a mistake to say, well, all this is nothing but a bunch of waves. Again, I don't think that that's correct. I, I, I I, I think that's a mistake to go down that road and that leads you into all sorts of, uh, difficulties. And so, um, uh, but I don't know that that affects my view very much, right? In other words, in other words, um, that I don't think persons, are kind of funny non-physical substrates. I don't know that it has much relationship to the question of the relationship between this and ad- atom lattices or something. Um, um, but maybe you think that it does.
1: Well, so I'm not, I'm just trying to get clear on the term. Sure. So one thing that's very interesting to me is to think about whether making this distinction between things, let's say thick things and thin things, or like things and just existent, existing things that are not yeah. thingy things, whether that kind of removes all the, the problems here. So let me just kind of use an example. Um, one of the dreams that I've had that's kind of a recurring dream is where I'm aware that I'm dreaming, and I'm paying attention to my experience, and somehow I'm in a philosophical mode, and I'm wondering, like, what is that? It's so like, a version of this was I was, like, in a car with a friend, and I started realizing I was dreaming, and I started telling my friend, you know, you're not actually – real and 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 i was also thinking he doesn't even know that because this is just a dream and then i i invited him over to look at a wall and i started pointing at the wall and i said you see this wall here we can make distinctions between like this color and this bump i mean it's clear that this isn't just nothing because you can't distinguish one nothing from another nothing so it's something but what is that right and i'm like having this dream like what is that well, let's just say it's not a thing. Okay. It's not a substance. It's not, doesn't have mass. Okay. Um, but it's, it's real. There, there's, we can distinguish one part of it from another. And, and so let's, so let's say that the fundamental nature of physical reality is a thing. Um, and and mental reality is not a thing. And like, I'm still wondering, like, how does that sort of solve the, the problem of like, how do you get the one from the other? Like, if I just think of a bunch of like sand particles, I just throw them out into the wind. And I just imagine them like taking a certain shape or configuration. And that makes it the case somehow that there is this, not a thing, but this experiential textured first person-ish perspective. And my mind is still going numb. Like I'm still sort of under that pain of, what you might call the hard problem of consciousness. It's like, it still feels like a kind of category mistake or kind of a weirdness. And especially, I think you might appreciate this because I mean, you lean into common sense. And at my sense is that one of your sort of reasons for um, kind of not going with a kind of strict emergent view is precisely that you would see there's a kind of puzzling thing going on. And what I hear you saying is that a way out of the puzzle what I hear you saying, tell me if I'm wrong, is that what makes it puzzling is that we're treating both the mind and the matter as like things. And what I'm wondering if, is if there's still a puzzle, even if we say the mind is not a thing, but it's real. It's something, not just not a thingy thing.
0: Yeah. <laughs> tell yeah. me, so, what, what do you think? Do you think that – let me just sort of uh, poke around. I mean, do you do you think that there's something inherently puzzling about the idea of a space of reasons – and the, uh, an ontology within the space of reasons.
1: Not yet. It sounds okay.
0: Um, only because to my mind, persons occupy the space of reasons. Uh-huh. Human organisms occupy physical material space. How do you get the one space from the other? That's, yeah but the thing is I'm not I I am going to want to ask what you mean by get right so in Bons other words and another right but that to me implies that to me is is a notion imported from the scientific image the right scientific image, in yeah. other words what you're thinking of is okay well you know um a uh, 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 mammal's birth infants you know give, so you could say the infant came from the mammal and what i mean is you know it literally like came out of it right or i could say that you know you know, doing this got me that you know, I, I gave somebody $5 and, you know, in return I was given, um, uh, I was given, uh, uh, you know, a couple of candy bars. Um, but that can't be what we mean by get when we're talking across this way. Right. I mean, and so I almost would say that I think that the question um, is a bad question. Um, um, I, 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 because I take the things. manifest image and the scientific image to be, Um, autonomous Um, in the, in their internal logics and in their ontologies and that their relationship in terms of um, how they interact, like I said, is that they interact stereoscopically to give us a single picture of a world with persons and everything that follows from that in it. Mm -hmm. But the questions that try to push farther beyond down than that suggest a kind of relationship that I think is based on concepts that only can be metaphors, right? And if you start trying to cast them out, what what you find is that they're really just imported notions from the scientific image. Look, it's sort of similar to, you know, people sort of importing the language of causality into the space of reasons, right? Um, um, So, so I think that the relationship between reasons, and actions and ends are teleological, not causal. Mm-hmm. The relations between motor movements are causal. and the relationship between the one set and the other is that reasons, actions, and ends are the result of a certain interpretation of motor movements, right Yeah, yeah well, this so is they exist and they exist in a space of reasons, but they don't exist within a space of causes.
1: Yeah, so it's interesting. I was sort of thinking that the concept of get—I thought you might actually worry that I was getting that concept from even the manifest image. So maybe maybe I wasn't sure,
0: but yeah, right.
1: So it could probably go from either one. Um, Well, so let me ask you this. I mean, you would say there was a time in the history of the universe when there was no manifest image,
0: sure, before any life ever evolved in the in the universe. There was just you know matter and energy, right?
1: Yeah. And then later at some point there's a manifest image and that manifest image has thin, thin existence. It's real. Okay. So I'm sort of wondering like, how, how can that be? Like, I mean, I don't have to use the word get, um, I just to give you a little bit more of a concept. Let
0: me ask you why you wonder the, so why? Maybe I'm just, an, you know, I'm starting to wonder, so sort of when talking to so many people, whether I'm just really, really incurious, um, um, which is an odd, odd attribute for a philosopher. But to me, unless something is intrinsically puzzling, it's not something I would ask, how is that possible? And I don't see anything puzzling about the idea that once nature proceeds to the point that includes beings with the capacity for representation, reasons, ends, (laughs) that 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 then creates a new space, right? In other words, I don't find anything intrinsically puzzling about that. So asking how it's possible is just not a question that I would even even ask. So what is intrinsically puzzling about that?
1: Yeah, okay, this is good. So um, I wrote down a few things that I personally find puzzling about it. Uh, so the one thing would be just you might think of it just in terms of the category. Almost like there are some categories that you can't go from the one to the other. Like so, an obvious example would be if you wanted to try to build a prime minister using prime numbers. So you like add up a bunch of prime numbers in your mind, and then like outcomes like a real prime minister, not real in the thingy sense, but in the thin thin way. I have the intuition like that couldn't be. So like if there was some, if somebody had a theory of the world on which like numbers come before people, I would think that I'd be puzzled by that theory. I think, no, it goes the other way. Like people come before numbers. I think I maybe have a similar feeling about matter coming before mind. So maybe it would help to kind of sketch a view that I find. It's kind of a working hypothesis for me, but I sort of find it plausible, which is that if you think about the fundamental nature of matter and you follow current theory on this. It looks like it bottoms out in fields, which themselves may even bottom out in some physicists talk about informational states. Now, when I think about informational states coming from a mind, that doesn't seem problematic. So if I imagine sort of a mind as a sort of anchor of reality, and I understand that leads to other questions, but if I I just think about this category problem, how you get the one from the other, or if I, if you don't want to use the word get, like just how in a sequence of moments, one comes after the, the other. Um, I can sort of see how like informational states that, that uh, generates our experiences of matter come from a mind. But if I flip that and I go in the other direction and I just imagine like a bunch of particles, just like smashing each other and that these aren't informational states fundamentally, but these are um third person, things uh in the thingy thing sense and that they would produce this sort of experience like like right now i'm having this experience of like thinking about something and feeling that thought and there's just something about that i mean it's hard to really convey it it's just kind of this just this intuition that just it feels feels like if i throw sand in the air like it couldn't produce sadness it's not just that it probably wouldn't you know, we need the right conditions, but like it, it's like metaphysically impossible. So I don't know, do you have any sort of intuition like that or is it just not, um, not the same?
0: Well, I mean, let me say a few things um, about what you said. Um, um, first of all, in terms of the the notion that this idea of certain physicists that the ultimate constituents of the physical universe is are, is information that can only be a metaphor, right? Because something doesn't count as information unless it's interpreted. Right. So, I mean, it, the idea of something being intrinsically informational is, is just a nonsense. It, if, it doesn't, if,
1: if mindless it, matter comes
0: first, it doesn't mean I understand. But as the second thing I was going to say is, physicists are saying if, if this works. is, if this is some sort of, you know, supposed to be some sort of panpsychic sort of thing, I, I To me, the idea that sort of, you know, muons are conscious and things like that, that strikes me as, as equal nonsense. Um, indeed, the instigator for the prolegomena was me getting tired of having conversations with panpsychists. <laughs> um, Massimo and I had this very, <laughs> somewhat torturous conversation with one of the prominent current panpsychists, and we just kept going around and around in circles until I, I realized that the, the the interaction was futile. And that then motivated me to say, okay, what can I do to, to, so that I'll never have to have these conversations again? And I, I sort of made a list of what I deemed crazy views in philosophy, um, which included panpsychism, substance dualism, eliminative materialism, all these sorts of things. And I, I started saying, well, what do these all have in common? They're all positions that people fi- feel themselves forced into. They're nothing that anybody would want to start with, right? Because they're such wild violations of of, of, of common sense and ordinary ways of thinking. They're, they're positions that you arrive at out of desperation. Well, why do we get so desperate? And then I started saying, oh, we're thinking about a number of fundamental things in a, in a bad way. And that's what sort of leads to this sort of snowballing. So I just want to be clear, sort of, views like the idea that consciousness is the foundation of all nature are the sorts of views that I actually did all of this to get to to avoid, to get out of, right. Uh to not have to confront because I don't take them. um, I I take them as sort of non starters. Now in terms of the specific question you ask about, um, you know, whether this is just sort of puzzling or confusing. um, Let me just say two things. Number one, um, Even within the scientific image, we still don't have a clue how you get life out of completely inorganic matter, right? And so, and so what I'm saying is that we ought to be, we need to be really careful about rushing to what I call crazy positions, just simply because we can't see how something is right now. I mean, it sort of, it sort of reminds me a little bit of like, of the way that theists will sort of jump to the supernatural just because they can't sort of see right now how something could be the case. Well, what we can see could be the case is really, really limited, right? I mean, it it really isn't much of a basis for anything. Um, So that's the first thing I would just sort of say is that, look, these sorts of inconceivabilities are legion. They're all over the place. I don't see anybody over in biology suggesting – exotic sort of views because we don't right now understand how a bunch of carbon turns into an alligator, right? Um, um, so that's one thing I would say. So I would say, I would caution against making those kinds of leaps in philosophy. The second thing I would say though, um, and this is perhaps a bit more apt and in, in what we're talking about is, is I can think of a number of places where certain acts create things that then create spaces mm-hmm. that have things in them that in a sense have their own autonomous being and their own internal logic. And what I'm thinking about are things like fictions, right? Um, um, We create, we create fictions and that creates a sort of a new space within which we can speak of things. We can speak of the sort of, of sort of an internal logic that governs those things. And yet, if you ask me, you know, you know, where, where do hobbits come from? Right? I mean, You know, I'm going to sort of say, well, that's a sort of a weird question, right? I mean, you know, it's part of the story, right? I mean, it's part of the, and I guess I feel a little bit the same way about this. I guess, you know, again, this is probably more a fault of mine than anybody else's, but no, I don't find it puzzling at all. I don't find it puzzling at all that highly sophisticated evolved beings with very, very intricate brains that give rise to, the capacity to represent, to value, to then create, a, that creates a discursive sp- a space within. You have a whole series of entities and you have also an internal uh, explanatory logic um, that is autonomous. I don't find that puzzling. Um, I don't see anything strange about it at all. It seems to me. You know well
1: so so, so it, looks, it looks like we might actually agree on the methodology here, so the methodology that you were expressing was you don't want to like go to crazy views
0: and I'm saying square quotes because I'm not trying to be insulting right it's, no, it's defy, and I feel that it's a pithy way to just sort of bracket a bunch of views yeah yeah
1: yeah I'm not, I'm I'm not whole, insulting totally you with you on
0: that yeah, yeah, and, yeah and I feel yeah. that from you I'm not and, and, the I, 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 and
1: I just want to emphasize that i'm I'm right with yeah. you yeah on the methodology and this yeah. goes back to a point you made earlier about different people having different perspectives. And so what will sort of feel counterintuitive to one person uh, may not feel counterintuitive to another. So, I mean, it sounds like right now when we're considering like, how do you get <laughs> I Hate to use, I don't know what else word to use, right? It's
0: fine. I think we can work with, work. yeah. So, you
1: know, how do you get the sort of the mind from, from matter? Um, I hear you saying that that doesn't sort of strike you as, as crazy or counter counterintuitive. Um, whereas having mind as primary or foundational, that strikes you as, as crazy, sort of a, a non-starter. And so right away, like I want to affirm that. I mean, anybody in your dialectical then like should have your view, <laughs> because personally, I think that it's a matter of intellectual responsibility to orient your mind to believe the things that are the least crazy by your own light. So, so I, I just want to emphasize, even even for the audience, that I think we're really in sync on the methodology and then what remains is just sorting the sort of or exploring maybe kind of the sources of puzzlement or like why people would sort of find it puzzling and and say that there's this sort of hard problem of consciousness and maybe one sort of modest point of progress that could come out of this conversation would be over the question of whether you solve the hard problem by taking the thinginess out of consciousness and um so may, maybe what i hear you saying tell me if this is right would you say that if consciousness if persons were things in the way that rocks are things then you would feel the force of the hard problem of consciousness and that it's only when you take the out oh absolutely out of persons, absolutely that's if what one it is was to you.
0: interpret if one was to interpret ontological commitment within the manifest image hypostatically, it would create all of the hard problems that lead to what I call the crazy solutions. I do think that the hypostatic conception of ontological commitment is the main culprit. I would say the secondary culprit is the expectation of explanatory unity. I think those two things together pretty much create almost all the big, the so-called hard problems Mm -hmm. that then lead people to sort of, Tor, you know, twist themselves into knots to try to solve and go. You know, muons are conscious, or there aren't any people, or you know, just wave supervenience dust all over everything. Um, um, I, I do, I do think that those are the main culprits. They're not the only culprits, but they're the primary yeah. ones. Yes.
1: So I want to invite you to psychoanalyze me because here I am taking the thinginess out of persons, and I'm still finding myself.
0: I I would not presume to psychoanalyze you, man. A, I don't know you well enough. B, it's just not something I do to peers. I mean, um, I'm not at all – you know, when I said at the beginning that, um, in my view, these positions are largely suffer from indeterminacy, I mean, that includes mine, right? So I'm really not – I'm not about trying to refute other people or sort of, you know, drive them out of the discourse or whatever. That's just not my aim. Um, I'm just sort of adding. I'm, what, what I want to say, what, what I'm sort of saying is, if you want a kind of return to normalcy, you know, Warren Harding philosophy, I've got one for you. Right, I, I, I can I can help you stop worrying. Now, if you if, if you're inclined to worry, then then it's then my view is not really going to help. Right, I mean, I, I don't know that my view is going to assuage worries of people who who who, who want. Maybe the problem isn't that I'm incurious, but more rather than I'm not a very deep person. I just don't think human inquiry and understanding goes that deep right I think I think once you go beyond a certain depth, it actually things become more obscure rather than less. Um, I, I guess I'm in favor of of a somewhat of a superficiality in philosophical discourse um, uh-huh. um, uh, um I, I guess I wonder whether we are again kind of unconsciously engaged in a kind of a envy of the physicists. It's sort of just like, you know, those deep dives are so cool. You know, you go all the way down and you see, Oh, it's made of these crazy lattices and you go even deeper. And I just don't think that the stuff in philosophy is like that. I mean, I, and, and one thing I should just say about persons, since I, because you've used the word several times, I, I don't know that I think that there are our minds um, um, this is what I was wondering. I do think. I think. I think, if, I think. Persons are fundamentally social entities. They're not. I. I don't. I don't. I don't accept the inner, inner outer sort of thing, right? For, mostly for Wittgensteinian reasons, right? Um, um, I'm very impressed by the private language and rule-following arguments. Um, I don't think that they've ever been successfully uh, re- responded to. Um, and so, and I don't buy into the very extreme version of liberal personal identity, right? In other words, you know, one of the problems I have with the sort of the current zeitgeist is this idea that people just seem to be assuming that people are self-defining, no, they're not, right? They're just not. I mean, there's that wonderful Lewis C.K. joke, right? I mean, I don't know if you remember this, right? But A says to B, you're an asshole. And B says back to A, no, I'm not. And A says, well, that's not really for you to decide, is it, right? Um, an awful lot about what we are as people is not determined by us, is not determined, quote, unquote, internally. It's determined by other people. It's determined by external roles and relations, um, um, and so I would want to, I would want to argue for a kind of a mitigated Lockeanism, right? I mean, I'm going to want to say that, um, the ancients, the pre-moderns were not entirely wrong about personhood, right? Um, and I'm going to want to say that the, the radical libertarians are not right about personal, per, personhood. I think, to a great extent, persons are public entities, right? I don't think that we're, I don't buy this idea that there's an interior space. Mm-hmm. That's where I am, right? Or uh-huh. <laughs> well, that so, it's
1: exclusively interior.
0: I mean, yeah, it occurs so, to me that you can certainly brains. I've got stuff have- inside my head, but it's uh-huh. not. It's not like there's like like Dan is in there, right? I mean, that's just that's just sort of a homunculism that I just wouldn't accept, right? So let, let's. I'm curious yeah. to explore this. So so let's sure. grant that thoughts have a a. I've been content. tempted by behaviorism,
1: by the way, quite tempted in a lot of ways. Yeah, is this a kind of logical behaviorism, or this sort of? I, I the, ontological. I think variation. Skinner
0: is like two thirds right. I mean, there's a lot of it that's you know wrong, and I, I, I don't think it you know it could be a complete account. But I do think that a lot of his arguments against kind of mentalistic treatments are spot on. Um, I do. I think Skinner's well, critique of mentalistic accounts are. I agree with that more than I agree with the overall behaviors program uh, because, you know, there's clearly cognition. I mean, if, if what you mean is brain activity and mm-hmm. there's clearly, there's clearly cognition. Um, but um, um, you know, a lot of the, the philosophically mentalistic stuff just strikes me as homuncular and ultimately uh, question begging
1: well I think this dubious,
0: dubious metaphysics yeah
1: yeah I feel like this is the right place to focus it's sure. sort of on the nature of minds and thoughts sure to sort of think more about sort of how there can be persons right and the first thing i just wanted to affirm that obviously you can have you can think that thoughts have wide content that's fixed by external things and still think that there are thoughts so I'm sort of imagining that, oh,
0: sure, that there when you are eliminate
1: monsters. minds or when you're saying maybe you're not sure if there are minds, you're thinking of minds in a kind of maybe narrowly internalistic um, sense of mind. Right. And so then my, my next slide, I'm, I'm very curious to explore this with you. So let's just take an example of a, of a thought. Let's take the thought that uh, if there are two people, then there's more than one person. Okay. And so that's a thought that um, I have, and that's a thought that I assume that you're, you're having now. Um, there's something similar about the, the thought in you and the thought in me. And one way of accounting for this is that there's a kind of shared content. Um, and then we could ask, is the thought true? And if the thought is true, well, you might think that then it's got to be true because of some sort of reality. And I understand that you have a deflationary uh, theory of truth, and that's okay, um, but even on a sort of deflationary theory of truth, like if we think of our scientific theories as being true because of you know an actual reality, then we can um, kind of use that same idea and think that, okay, well, if there are two things there's more than one thing, that's because of some reality and Now my question is like well, what reality is that um, what kind of a reality is it? Let's assume it's not a thing. Um, But maybe I want to ask you, there's a cluster of related questions and it's related to whether the mind is sort of, there's there's more to the mind than what you'll find in matter, whether the matter is internal or external. Um, And if if that might actually be playing a role in sort of the intuition that mind can not come from matter. So, Okay. I'm bringing too many things on the table at once. So let me, let me try to focus it and and you take this where you want to take this first question. Um, Do you think that the thought that if there are two people, there's more than one people, that that thought expresses something that's true? Yes. Okay. And then what would you say like makes it true?
0: Well, I mean, I, 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 mean, I'm, I'm a disquotationalist, so I mean, truth is not a substantive property, right? It's just, I don't, I agree with Davidson that I don't see the difference between "quote s unquote s" is true and just s. So let's let's, let's grant that. Um, so I don't I don't know that I. Th- don't know. I mean, you're asking me for what it, what what what, it, what what fact it corresponds to, and I would say, well, I don't, I don't know that I think that there are facts in that sense. Uh-huh. I mean, yeah, okay. I mean, I do, I do accept the basic Davidsonian argument about that, which he makes in a number of places. Um, one of them that I'm thinking of is on the very idea of a conceptual scheme. Um, um, he talks about how, uh, about the equivalence between quote S unquote is true and just S. Um, and part of the problem, part of the reason is because of the problems with the idea of the truth maker, right? I mean, um, and also the idea that I don't see that you can define, I, I don't see that you can define the, you know, the correspondence relation. I don't, you can't there's a circularity in defining the correspondence relation in terms of reality or the fact because i don't see how you can make sense of the idea of the reality of the fact or without invoking the idea of truth and so you just wind up with a circular with a circular account and so and i also just think it's superfluous um 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 but you know that's that's again due to my background i mean i was trained by a bunch of deflationists, right? Um, well, I, I wrote down a question. <laughs> I labeled this the annoying
1: question. Yeah, sure. And this might this might annoy you, but I wanted to ask you, it doesn't annoy are, some me. Of the, are some of the things that you believe to be true actually true? And and, and it's sort of annoying because I'm thinking you're going to want to say, well, commonsensically, well, yeah, I mean, some of the things you think to be true are actually true. I wouldn't but then dis- course, I don't know
0: what the difference between true and actually true is.
1: Well, okay, okay.
0: So, That's like yeah, someone asking me whether something really exists. I don't know. Yeah, what that, yeah.
1: yeah. Is it that word's unnecessary? Are yeah. some of the things that you believe um true?
0: Sure. Are some of the things that you believe? Sure. I'm drinking. Is? I'm drinking soda. That's. And true. And
1: so then, then of course, it follows that there are some things that are true. And my my thought is that the sort of dif, uh, the uh, or the disquotation um, the equivalence schema. So S is true if and only F, if S isn't going to in and of itself. Um, be able to translate out the statement that there are truths I mean you could give a sort of infinite translation of that but um, this is this is always like one of the – so in my book on The correspondence Theory of Truth – Which I was, You only sent me today, so it's not like I could have read it. I'm not even trying to score
0: a point here or anything. And I'm like, assuming was, that you do engage with deflationists like Horwich and stuff. I, I, I do engage with, because, with, with that, you Because know, yes. you you the book wouldn't pass otherwise, so I'm, I But I'm also
1: friendly in yeah. the sense that my project wasn't to refute the deflationists, but rather to make the argument that even if the deflationary schema – um, even if we accept that schema, there are still some questions that are
0: uh, in unanswered. Words, in other words, I guess I'm, I guess what I take Davidson to be saying is that he doesn't see why we need more than the, the Tarski sentences, right?
1: Yes, and my my the question I've always had is how can you have sentences come out sentences sentences about like there are some things that you think are true. Um, oh, I see are. what you
0: mean. You mean statements like there is at least one true statement, right? Yeah, yeah, Stuff you like, got it. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, no. Okay, okay. And I was I'm thinking, sorry, I'm now, now I see why you said that's annoying. Yeah, um, it is annoying, um, but I'm not annoying. annoyed. <laughs> this is because so you common. said on
1: your blog that it was annoying. You, you this you is used so, that this, argument, right. and I was like, yeah, that's a great argument. Right. And you said this is something that annoys you. So I thought,
0: uh, did I? Honestly, did I really? You actually said that in, in oh, one of your gosh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I must have been in a bad mood. Um, no, I took it in a good way. I um, thought it was funny. Um, right. So, so this this reminds me sort of like of objections to like, you know, the verification principle, right? You know, well, if you apply the verification principle to the verification principle, it doesn't work. I guess I do think it's kind of a, 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 cheap, a cheap shot. A, and that's sort not just that, that but that sort of. You win without winning anything, right? I mean, it's it's sort of it's sort of you can always muck things up by making them reflexive, right? I mean, I mean the same the same thing with the liar paradoxes, right? Once you start sort of, and I guess I would be much more inclined to sort of think that these things result out of peculiarities of, 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 of reflexive syntax than reflecting any sort of deep things about anything. Right. I mean, I mean, look, I, for all I know, there's a clever, you know, Rossellian way like there is with the present King of France of sort of basically translating away these sorts of statements right it's not something i would i would want to spend a lot of time on just simply a i don't have the logical chops and b um it's not something that worries me very much and so and so it's not something i'd be motivated to invest a lot of effort in that makes
1: sense. but
0: but i guess that i do think that they're not cheap in the sense that the person is being that the person is sort of cheating or something but more that they're not the kinds of objections that make, that concern me very much because those kinds of objections often simply have technical solutions, right? It turns out to be either something odd about the syntax of certain languages or it turns out to be something odd to do about the relationship between the logical form and the syntax in certain, in certain languages. Um, or as in the case of the verification principle, I guess it trades upon Certain ambiguities um, um, that arise when you're when you're talking about um, um, uh, confirmation um, um, and what sorts of things we're talking about when we talk about applying the verification principle um, to them and so I'm, I, my answer is i don 't have an answer but that i don't it doesn't bother me all that much that I don't have an answer. Maybe that's not very. Well, and that's okay. I mean, (laughs) my
1: goal wasn't necessarily to object
0: to the deflationary
1: account. Yeah. I mean, like I said, you have a more substantive,
0: but do you have a more substantive? I mean, just, I'm going to read the book since you were kind of sending me, but is there a more substantive engagement other than that? Well, so, I mean, my point was that um, there are these true
1: sentences in ordinary language that seem to point to something beyond what the, deflationist schema is accounting for which I don't even take that necessarily to be an objection it's just it's kind of point I, I use it to motivate the value of giving a account of correspondence which is kind of central to that focus to see how can you actually account for correspondence without falling into the kind of circularity problems that you mentioned um, but I mean we can just completely set that aside because going back to kind of that main question like how there can be people and sort of seeing like how One could even be puzzled about how there could be minds, even on a thin account of minds. I was kind of throwing out a lot lot of different pieces to kind of of see if I could make headway in that question in particular because when I would think about the elements of persons, I would think about things like thoughts, um, truth, logic, moral sense, uh, rationality, reason. I'd think about all those things. And sometimes some of those elements – and this is going to relate back to sort of that hard problem of like getting the one from the other, getting mine from non-mine versus flipping that. Like some of those elements seem maybe more puzzling than other elements. So for me, like when I reflect on it, if I think about it in, in the most sort of abstract way of like getting mine from non-mine, that doesn't really generate a feeling of like confusion or puzzlement just sort of on its own. It's more when I kind of drill in, I start thinking about, or particular elements of mind, like truth or logic or principles of reason or rational thought, and I and then then I focus on sort of purely mindless matter, and I just think about the one I think about the other, I subtract the thinginess, I follow your advice, I, I subtract the thinginess from my concept of of the rational thought principles of reason, these things, and then I just still find myself feeling puzzled and i 'm wondering this is like my hypothesis like i'm wondering if the puzzlement sort of depends on a certain sort of angle of considering the elements in play and that it does go away if sort of we abstract away and we sort of think of this a kind of broad scientific story of the development of human organisms. Um, but then if we actually zoom in, we actually do like pay attention to our own thoughts and our own feelings and the rationality, like what it is we're doing right now, just like thinking and we just pay attention to that. We focus on that. And then we think about sand blowing in the wind. Then there can be a kind of intuition. And again, the goal here isn't to say, therefore, you should flip your view because I, what I hear you saying is the alternatives are crazier. But I, I'm wondering if we can get a little, may, may, maybe this is my desire, if I have any desire, is that you feel sort of the pain of all the views on, the, on your table. So that all of them feel crazy to some degree. And
0: then it's just a matter of picking the least crazy view. Yeah, I like. I look. I I like to think of my view as at least in my in at least in my view, as carrying the least sort of baggage, right? I mean, um, um. But you know this issue about what continuing to find something puzzling is is really sort of interesting to me. Just let me ask you. I mean, do you think that beyond the resources of the physical sciences? the natural sciences that there's something deeply puzzling about the fact that we don't know how we get life from inorganic matter.
1: That feels different. So when I think about that, it feels like sort of a, maybe a probability problem or a complexity problem. Um, It's sort of like if I saw
0: you could, see, you could sand. see how I could say the same thing about complexity. You know, Well, let's imagine a bunch of sand, make it as complex as you want, right? And do yes. all these things and sort of, you know. That's right. Well, that's um, what I was um, going to
1: say. Like if I saw a bunch of sand blowing <laughs> in the wind and it came into the form of my wife's face or something, right. that would be like puzzling, but it wouldn't feel like an
0: in-principle puzzle. But it coming together and making a crocodile, that does seem really deeply puzzling, right? It doesn't. It just and now doesn't I need a philosophical seem- account. It doesn't making
1: crocodile bodies doesn't feel, in principle, puzzling. That just seems like a complexity problem. It's, it's more. I don't know how else to say this. It's it's like adding up the prime numbers to get a prime minister. It's like that feels like more than just a problem of complexity or a problem of of probability. It's like in principle, like in principle, like rational thought. Like yeah, no, I when see. You're what thinking you rationally. Do you yeah. feel that it's?
0: No, I see what you're saying, and I guess you know this is going to be one of these very hard places where you sort of butt up against each other's incredulities in a way that that this is sort of unresolvable. So I should sort of, sort of say why I'm leaning on this thing about the life, right? Yeah. Um, so when I've discussed this with Massimo, which I've done many times, and as I, I told you, he's a, um, in addition to being a philosopher, also had something like 20 years or so as an evolutionary biologist. Massimo's view is that there is a continuum between inorganic matter life and then what I've been calling sort of social reality. Right. Um, 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 the, 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 thing we're, the things we're talking about that are supposedly, and he, re, and he thinks that that's on a single spectrum. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he also thinks it just may never be the case that we understand. Right. Um, the 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 transition points precisely because he doesn't think they're transition points, right? It's not like on the left side you were one thing and on the right side you were the another, right? It just, it sort of all bleeds, right? And um um, I guess I'm to some degree sympathetic to that, and I guess I think that's all right. I, I guess I think also partly that, and maybe this is sort of just because I love Hume so much. I really do believe in some pretty hard limits on human inquiry. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I do think, you know, you know, you can look at philosophy two ways, right? You can look at the Hume way and the Kant way. The Hume way is um, uh, when you hit the paradoxes, that's where, that's where, that's where rational investigation ends. Right. And Mm -hmm. Kant thinks when you hit the paradoxes, that's where it begins. Right. I'm in the Hume camp. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, I guess in part the kinds of questions you're getting to I think are beyond the line, right? I think now you're starting to get into things that are really beyond the limits of of rational investigation. Um but then I also have a very relatively limited view of, of rational investigation. I mean I I I I, I I don't have a very expansive view of reason like the, like the pre-modern, like the Greeks do. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's some faculty by which we peer into the depths of reality. I think it's essentially a, a calculating instrument, right? I mean, it's, 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 um, mm-hmm. um, and I don't think it's the, the dominant source of our ideas. I mean, I agree with Hume about that also. I would prioritize the affective over the, over the, over the radio in terms of human, uh, human, both human belief and human action. The last thing I'll just say about this with regard to mind, and I'm going to let you control the time because we are an hour and a half and you, okay. I thought you said to me that you had a limit. So I'm going to let you control the time, but let me just say one last thing about this. Um, um, and that is that um, in terms of, well, you know what? I'll leave it at that. I mean, I, 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 I'm, I feel like philosophers a lot of them are going beyond the point where they should have stopped right <laughs> um um and that there's nothing fruitful beyond that point right i mean it just get it's just it's either just a mess or it's just a lot of making shit up it seems to me um 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 And part of the testament to that is just, A, that the views are so exotic, B, that they depend so heavily on metaphor. They seem almost inexpressible without just loads of metaphors. And they're subject to just wild indeterminacy. I mean, you know, this, you could have this argument for the next 10,000 years, right? And to me, those are all signs that you're just, you're in the part of the beach. You're not, you shouldn't go in, right? I mean, you just sort of, you know, you're outside the flags. Yeah,
1: I, I really appreciate that. Yeah. It's interesting. Now, this might be a point of difference in methodology and personality, because for me, when I see the paradox, something that just doesn't make sense, like I get my flashlights out and I can't yeah. stop thinking
0: about it. You like, have that Kantian view of inquiry. You think it is yeah. a scandal to philosophy that the that the that the existence of the external world has not been proven. Yeah, I don't. Well, it
1: excites me. Yeah. It just it interests me, and I I mean I would say. Uh, that the puzzlement is sort of an invitation for gaining more wisdom because when you puzzle over something that's confusing and complex the very process of trying to dig deeper and deeper and deeper tends to in my experience just unlock new understandings i mean even going back to like corwick's deflationary account it makes sense it's beautiful but then if you go deeper into it, it's like well there's still some questions and and i think that those questions actually do, do lead us further which isn't to say anything against the account it's just to say that maybe this is just the, the point where um almost like we need different inquire uh different philosophers almost like working on different projects because we can't all work on all the projects and so we need like some philosophers like really curious like obsessed about the liar paradox like me, like I'm like riding my bike to school and I'm just thinking about five different possible solutions to the liar paradox. And you might look at that and you might say, I'm just like wasting my time over there.
0: Like spending my time thinking about that. But in my experience, I don't really feel that way. You know, I, I, I I say a lot about crazy philosophies and I don't want to have conversations like this anymore, but I'm the first one who thinks to say, we should have such people. Right. I mean, I, I you know, um, um, I, maybe I don't want to necessarily talk with them for that long, but, but, but mm-hmm. I, I'm not in the, in the business of, of trying to get rid of the philosophies that I call crazy, which is why I try to sort of, you know, make be be yeah. scare quoted. it. although I can get sort of cranky and especially when I worry a lot about, I'll, I'll say this um, um, because I did say this to Crispin in the last dialogue. And I don't want people to think I'm just being blatantly contradictory. I do worry a little bit about it now Um, um, because I think, and we won't have enough time to explore this. Maybe we can have another conversation. I do think philosophy is in very, very dire predicament now. That's been made a hundred times worse by coronavirus and the financial pressures it's going to exert on universities. That I think that right now, Our penchant for really esoteric stuff like this, as well as these crazy meltdown antics within the social justice wing of philosophy, I think may doom us to a really quick death. Um, Because if I'm a state legislator and I'm trying to decide whether to fund a university and the university is telling me, well, this is what they do in the philosophy department, I'm going to press the delete button right Mm -hmm. um um and so i just i do right now worry a little bit about too much too many people talking about muons being conscious because i just think it's a it's a it's a fast track to 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 getting your department eliminated right um but in an ideal situation or even better circumstances. If this was thirty years ago, I wouldn't be saying this right. Um but I do think now we kind of have to be lean and a little practical and more grounded. Um I'm with you if on we're that. gonna survive. Yeah. The
1: way that I would put it is, and I've been thinking a lot about that, is to really seek to be relevant. And so even as you're working on your inquiry, to think about how can this serve the ordinary person on the street and also to work with the empirical data you know and to bring in um, whatever science is relevant so that it's kind of a more holistic project rather than a kind of obscured uh philosopher in the armchair project where you're animated by sort of thinking of a clever response to a clever theory that's disconnected from anything anybody cares about yeah and so here i think is probably a point of agreement and resonance is like we got to make our philosophy relevant yeah. Um, for it to really serve.
0: People. At least for I now, I mean, while we're in such dire financial straits, um, you know, one last thing I would ask you um, just to seal up what we were talking about um, before is I don't know how old you are. I'm 52. So I, I'm assuming I'm significantly older than you. Um, I would say that I basically held a view like yours probably until I was almost about 40. Um, in other words, I used to be, get this, I used to be a Platonist, a Kantian. I mean, I used to be a full-blown rationalist, right? Um, I am now the opposite. And if you ask me why, I would say it's the experience over the course of age, of age, right? It, it, if you mm-hmm. ask me why, I would say marriage, child, p- child parenting, um uh watching my parents uh get close to dying like th- this whole life arc um i've just bec- gotten much more grounded in my orientation
1: mm-hmm.
0: i i have much less patience for these kinds of of excursions
1: mm-hmm.
0: um i also think they 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 largely miss the point uh I'm much more interested in in the human and in the ground, in the ground level. I'm interested in the social. Like I said, I think persons are essentially social entities. Um, I would define us not in terms of the things that you mentioned, you know, rationality, truth. I would define us in terms of relationships, roles, social embeddedness, all that sort of Mm -hmm. thing. And I guess I wonder whether when you're 50, 60 years old, if you're still going to be this interested now, of course, that does, is not any sort of argument because there's plenty of people older than that who are, that's all they do, right? I, just, I feel you. I actually my kind case, of relate to that. In my case, Even, it, it changed with aging. I went this way as I aged. Yeah.
1: I think I, I have a little bit of a similar experience getting married, having kids, talking with just people outside of the field and just kind of getting reoriented to almost like what matters more or what people are thinking about and how they think and maybe even appreciating more of a kind of relativism of perspective. And what you said about the indeterminacy, I would kind of put that in terms of um, a lot of times I find that different, what look like very different perspectives are actually substantially overlapped, but they're just talking in different ways. And so that's maybe even a way of like seeing how there is a kind of indeterminacy because your concepts are actually translatable into mine and that has come through experience. So, I mean, I would imagine that that will probably continue to be something that um, expands for me as I continue. But yeah, I feel like for me, seeing philosophy as kind of service to people is almost like the ultimate way to make it not just fall apart. It's almost like making that choice. Like, I'm going to actually do my research to try to serve people, to kind of help them with the questions they're thinking about. Yeah, and, and it can get practical. I mean, one of the reasons why in thinking about your work, I came up with the topic like, how can there be persons? I know that's a kind of like big question, right? But I mean it is a question that can be practically orienting. I mean, if, if you have a view, I mean just to kind of put all my cards on the table, like if you have a view on which mind is primary, um, that that can affect how you actually think about the meaning of your life and how you go about your work. If you have a view, I think which... it's a
0: general matter, though, that I find that most metaphysical positions are entirely empirically neutral, right? I mean, in other words, it doesn't change one thing on the ground whether I'm a metaphysical realist or an anti realist. They can be
1: empirically equivalent, but maybe they're practically impactful, sort of how I would think about it.
0: Like, if you're a metaphysical anti realist, are you not going to drink sodas? I mean, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I guess I just, I do think that they're kind of inert that they're primarily of a kind of intellectual interest, which I don't dismiss. But yeah. I guess I don't know that I would spend that much much effort on For example,
1: the- and maybe this is kind of a final point, the, so the ontology that I have in my mind gives extra reason to think of persons as having intrinsic and equal value. I'm not saying that I mm-hmm. need my ontology mm-hmm. for that, but it mm-hmm. does give me extra reason for that. And that sure. it affects sure, how I, I engage people. It affects how I think of people. Um, Affects how I love people, and that that can be practical. For example,
0: yeah, yeah. Yeah. If if indeed our affectations are are, and our affections really come top down like that, I'm not sure. I think they do. It's integrated, Um, probably. um, Yeah, it's probably integrated. Um, And I just, um, I probably still remain not entirely clear on what whether your puzzlement is. What strikes me is essentially a question for biology, right? Which is how does nature give rise to creatures capable of representation and valuation, right? Um, and, teleolo- and a sort of teleological thinking. Uh-huh. Yeah. Or if your question is, well, once you have those, what's the space that it creates? And I guess I That's think one first. question is a science question that maybe we'll answer maybe we one the other question I don't think is puzzling at all for the reasons right. I gave with regard to sort of like it's not puzzling on how you can create a, a fictional world in w- which has its own space and has its own you know I, I guess I'm still not sure but you do feel the puzzle of the first perhaps to a degree I feel but I, to me it's not a philosophical puzzle that's a sci- that 's mm-hmm. just something that scientists are either going to be able to figure out or not right yeah I guess that's what what I guess I, I was thinking of it as
1: philosophical is because it's it's kind of an in principle. Um, like, I don't think of it as a, as sort of a scientific question. Like how could you produce a prime minister out of prime numbers? Like that scientific, not a scientific question, but like,
0: but how do you create a, how know, do you create like, a, how, how a create, capable of representation out of carbon? That feels, that's a scientific question, right? I mean, that's maybe the word. How
1: is I'm stumbling over that because science, I, I maybe we have different conceptions of science, but like, I would think of the scientist as sort of, identifying the conditions under which a representational being evidently emerges. But that doesn't seem to me to like explain
0: like how that's possible in principle. I think the capacity to represent is going to wind up being a function of sophisticated neurology, right? I mean, that's going to be now questions about what sort of space is created by representation. Now that strikes me as, you know, I want to, I want to say to a great extent, a kind of a linguistic, a linguistics kind of question, Um, maybe a logic kind of question. Um, But again, not one that's intrinsically philosophically puzzling. Right. Um, And I guess I'm wondering whether your question question either lies in between those or whether it's,
1: I don't know, like, so, like, Searle's idea that, like, syntax isn't semantics, you know, that, like, you can actually get a bunch of things functioning as if, but you don't get the sort of first-person actual experience. Well, he thinks
0: consciousness is necessary for representation, and I don't, right? I would say the the way you get semantics out of syntax is through various relations to either external things or to... Uh, uh uh socially uh, socially uh practiced rules right um that's how the syntax becomes contentful um content arises out of the reference re- out of the re- out of the reference relation right it's um the consciousness i think that's the yeah the conscious
1: yeah. representation.
0: I'm wondering whether consciousness is playing a lot of the role in your, in your and I, I have a very deflationary view of that also. So we, we can maybe talk about that on another occasion. Um, very good. I actually anyway, like I, this,
1: this end part of the conversation, that back and forth right there, <laughs> that contained a lot of uh, interesting, it's almost yeah. like you have to have some part of that right in the front or something, because that was really, that was very special. Yeah.
0: Very special. I really, I want to thank you for this. I want to thank you, A, for agreeing and B, um, I want to thank you. You're really, uh, I almost kind of envy you. I like your attitude. You really are as the, one of the more, most open people I've talked with. Um, thank I you. feel like I could actually learn a lot from having conversations with you. I think I could probably become a better interlocutor. So I want to thank you really much for your, your attitude as much as your contribution. Um, really nice talking to you, man. Thank
1: you. I feel the same way about you. I feel like philosophy is about exploration. And I feel like just talking with you made it easy to really explore the, the topics. And I feel like you've given me some cool things to think about. So thank you.
0: Appreciate well, thank it. you very much. And I hope that you I hope we can do this again. Okay. Me too. Thank All you. Right, you. Take care.